But sometimes there's pressure or discomfort, or I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is my least favorite pose. How long are we going to be here? Welcome to Anecdotal Anatomy, the podcast that curiously explores the stories the body holds and tells through conversations, stories, and practices. Our mission is to connect the individual to the collective through our stories, so we may better understand our interdependence and ultimately live a more peaceful coexistence. Is that too much to ask for? Each episode builds from the last and contains kernels of every conversation we've had to date. We cover sciencey things like fascia, anatomy, the nervous system, and other body-based science. We also have a pretty high tolerance for the woo factor, which, let's face it, it is also energy and should not be discarded as if it has no value. We are nature-loving, yoga and meditation-teaching podcasters that could, aiming to make the world just a little better than we found it. Our motto is, leave no trash trace, we're only visiting but leave your heart print with every step. Hello, Sherry. Hey, Teresa. How's it going? It's going great. We're so glad that you're here. So welcome. I'm also glad that I didn't just jump right in and forget that part, which we usually do. <laughs> Yeah, hello, Teresa. Hello, Sherry. That's pretty much our, our banter. But now let's get down to business. What are we doing? What's yeah, happening? let's do this thing. So we have looked at the koshas from so many different ways because we're so passionate about this holistic perspective of yoga. And today we're going to talk about kosha yoga and what exactly does that mean? We will be leading you through all of the different layers in conversation, not in practice. But if you want to go through all the layers in practice, we will be offering kosha yoga on May 20th, and we'll give you more information about that at the end. So today we'll talk, but we hope you can join us and experience kosher yoga for yourself. You know, it's so funny. When you were talking, I was thinking this feels so much into the reason we started doing this podcast to begin with, which was to teach anatomy in a conversational, even kind of a, in a storytelling fashion. And part of that is repetition. It's you know, not necessarily memorizing insertion and origin points and agonist and, and whatever the stuff is, but the koshas, you know, we did, that was our first season. And for people who were not familiar with these five sheaths of our being, that was maybe the introduction. And so we did very sort of, you know, talked about them, brought in guests who could contextualize them in different ways. And then we just more recently did our kosher countdown to Earth Day. So we looked at the earth and our, our role of stewards of this earth through the lenses of the koshas. And so now we're going to be talking about kosha yoga. I'm not sure we coined that term, but it was a term that kind of organically arose from the things that we're doing. And we're going to be teaching this class, a yoga class based on the koshas. And I was thinking about it this morning and it was like, it's kosha yoga is really just yoga. The eight limbs, we did a whole season on yoga eight. And I'm thinking, what are the things? It's like, we're going to get more specific. But these five layers and these eight limbs. So the first, the, the, the ethics and the morality limb are the yamas and the yamas. There's two of those. And so we can really begin to excavate and move through the layers of our being through the holistic system and practices that, that yoga offers us. 
And for those of you who are like, but I thought yoga was just poses, go back to season one and join us now because yoga is eight limbs of amazingness. And you said, you know, the repetition, and I really like that you reminded me of that. One of the things I know about myself is that I learn things really, really slowly. And I have to go back and look at them over and over. I retain for a long time, but it really takes me repeating what I've read, what I've studied, what I practice in order to really know that I learned it and I understand it. And then, of course, no matter how well I understand it, there's always something that pops up, some new bit of information, some new book I read that I'm like, I have a little bit more. So, you know, for me, Toshi Yoga is just a multi-layer journey uh, stepping in. And we've talked about this before. When I first stepped into yoga, I stepped into yoga because I wanted an exercise program and yoga sounded really cool. And, and it was kind of mysterious to me, but I wanted a way to move my body. And so that's why I found yoga. And that so was... So before you continue, you've got the third limb of yoga, asana, and the first kosha, anamaya kosha. So to kind of make those connections, the physical food body that wants exercise and movement, and, you know, if we're going to limit it to that, but then also this third limb of asana, of yoga, allows us to express that and explore that. I'm sorry, just kind of because we've talked about a lot of these things before. So what makes today fresh? Yeah, that's right. I stepped in with, like where many people that I know have stepped into yoga. And you said, you know, we started with the first, with the food body, the kosher body. And the other thing that I really found for myself was that yoga became a lifestyle. And I think that's the transition that the koshas and the eight limbs helped me to see was that there was a place where I went. I went to studios. I went to um, a community college. I went to the gym. I went in a variety of different places where I practiced yoga, but somewhere along the journey, it just became a lifestyle. And when you mentioned food body and we talk about, you know, our being as that, this, this sack of where we just put all this food in and see how it can help all of our organs and physiology to work, <laughs> it reminded me of- It gives um, a whole new meaning to sack up. I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, it reminded me that yoga can be more than what we're doing on our mat or in the class that we're offering. You know, it was my yoga as a lifestyle that really helped me to develop my relationship with food, where my food came from, understanding my body as what it needed from the food I chose to eat. I think it was the influence that brought me into eating local as much as I can. So, you know, in addition to what we will teach on the mat and what the eight limbs and the koshas teach us, taking it off the mat and letting it influence our lifestyle, that's the next level of, of yoga. I think there might be a space right in between the two because what we teach on the mat, depending on the level of skill that the teacher is bringing and what they're teaching, you might get breath work, you might get you know, mudras and chanting and all, so many of the other aspects, meditation, you might get those things from the class, which are taught on the mat and practiced on the mat. And that is what gives us the data that allows us to go, wait a minute, but I'm, I'm me, whether I'm on the mat or off the mat. So how can I take these practices 
that seem sort of location specific and apply them to other aspects of my life, which then becomes yoga as a lifestyle, even if you're not necessarily even calling it that, you know, but it's a system of healing, not curing. We've talked about that, a system of awareness. And I think basically yoga is about self-study. So wherever you are is exactly where you're meant to be. And if it's just on the mat to begin with, that's awesome. It was just on the mat for me too. And I, for a long time, I didn't make the connection between what I was doing in the studio and out of the studio. And I felt like I brought to the studio my whole self. So it was, it was the opposite direction. I was bringing everything into the studio and living it there. And then leaving and still being my whole self, but maybe without as much awareness or consciousness about the actual practices or being able to see the cause and effect in my life at that time. Because that, like you said, it was really just, I went in for physical stuff. I, someone said, you have to take Lippy's class. I took Lippy's class. And then that was what sort of hooked me in. But this sometimes that thing, before it can even become a lifestyle or our awareness of that, there's that feeling, there's that, what is that? You know, I'm leaving this, this door, this sweaty room where the air conditioner was leaking and there were water stains on the floor. And I'm, I'm leaving feeling blissful. I'm leaving feeling like I can take on the world. I'm leaving feeling like I'm, I'm activated in some way. So there was, there was some time in between kind of making those connections that these practices in life are really just the same fucking thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we talk a lot about the stories the body holds and the story the body tells. And what I found was practicing on the mat in the studios and schools, I became more aware of the signals that my body was giving me and those signals and how they related to my overall health and well being. I started to find, you know, things in my body places in my body, you know, maybe somebody else has done this as well. I'd be like, oh, that place is a little tender. Or, oh, wow, I'm really stiff there that I wasn't even aware of until I started creating all of these different movements. So my awareness became so much deeper, beginning honestly with the physical, the Anamaya Kosha. But then all of the other layers of my existence started to speak to me a little bit like my teachers saying you know if you're if you're losing connection with your breath maybe you need to slow down a little bit so i started paying attention to my breath and noticing that next layer pranamaya kosha and letting my breath tell me stories about what emotions i was feeling or if i was ignoring my breath going in my yoga class where I'm like getting, I'm, I start hyperventilating because I'm moving too fast or not paying attention. So, you know, it was subtle how these different bits of information started coming into my practice. Also, my ego. I remember in the beginning, I'd be looking over at everybody else's mats, like, hey, how am I doing? Like comparing myself oh my or God. am I doing this right? I would have killed myself right there. I'm not really. But because, I mean, the room I was in the beginner was all these New York City ballerinas. Like if I was starting to compare and despair there, that would have just been the end of me. 
Now stay off of somebody else's mats. Women, you're all lame, man. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is true. You know, it's so funny because for all the years that I practiced, I practiced for about 10 or 11 years before I did my teacher training. And I feel like I learned, I learned more teaching than I ever learned as a student on the mat. I mean, that's that, and there's science behind that. The things you read, the things you hear, the things you see, but the things you teach really tend to land. And that's something that I'm feeling a lack in now since I'm not teaching. I'm losing some of it and some of the academic things, some of the names and some of the, the stuff that I was knowing just from repetition. But I have to say those signals, like I, in my teacher training, my L5S1 blew out. I had sciatica. I had serious low back pain. I was swimming in the shallow end. I'd already been practicing 10, 11 years and without any incident. And what was that? I mean, I had one incident before, but that was, <laughs> we talked about that, the patterns and the story that came up, my not being deserving of a certain thing that I had earned. And I will say that when I became a teacher, is when I started hearing those signals a little bit more and being able to really bring all of the yoga limbs and the koshas and all of the stuff that we talk about took on a clearer picture for me when I started teaching because then I became responsible to other people. So my accountability level rose a bit and it's just, it's a strange thing. And so I haven't taught in a couple of years and I'm reading this great book right now. I'm gonna digress for a moment. It's called Tantra Illuminated. And it came from a conversation I had with someone who was questioning what I had put out into the world. This is an incredible book. I want to remember everything that I'm writing in the margins. I'm underlining things going, oh my God, like, yes, I feel that. I, I, that's in my bones. Thanks for putting language to it. Thanks. And I'm feeling my breath sort of getting deeper and a little bit faster in a really weird way. It's that sympathetic and parasympathetic vying for attention. <laughs> so it's deep, but it's fast. And I just want to keep, and I think unless I teach this book, I can't imagine remembering any, like really in a meaningful way that then I can repurpose and put out to listeners or students and myself included. But all of that is to say that we're all different. We all find our ways and our pathways and our, our wisdom from our experiences. And sometimes it's just from showing up as a student and, you know, having that, that depth. I think, Teresa, what you described is advanced yoga. It's the advanced practice of being able to kind of find those connections and integrations and hear the, the messages. And, you know, handstand is beautiful and that may exemplify an advanced physical practice, but that's not an advanced yoga practice. I mean, because some people are gymnasts, they can hop right up into a handstand. I've been practicing 20 plus years. I still can't fucking do a handstand. I can do a headstand at the wall, but handstand, even if I'm helped up, I still hit my head on the way back. On my mm. way down. So my proprioception gets a little bit fucked up when I'm upside down in handstand, but not headstand. So anyway, but that only goes to show like there's so many different ways to advance your practice. And it also depends what you need. Maybe your physical body is crying out for more attention because it needs it. Maybe your vitality is a little bit low and it needs a boost or it's off the fucking charts and you need to take a fucking breath. Like there's something for everyone. And yoga is not an exclusive practice. You had mentioned earlier, like all of the different practices that we have, and I love mudras now. And for those of you who don't know mudras, they're hand gestures. But I have to say, when I was first introduced to hand gestures, I was like, oh, what is this? Like, I'm going to put my hands in a shape and that's going to like have me focus in a certain place, pay attention in a certain way. 
I was like very, very skeptical with, uh, and I tend to be a little skeptical now that my woo factor is much higher. I'm less skeptical about that. But back in the day, I really was. But I remember one of my teachers saying, you use mudras all the time. And I was like, I do. She goes, yeah, everybody uses mudras. Just think about how many times you use your hands in gestures to communicate something. And I started thinking about it and was prompted with a peace sign, right? That's the peace sign. And you know exactly what it is. And somebody does that. You hold up your peace sign. And it's just like, oh, it's going to elicit, hopefully, a certain response. But at the same time, if I put down one finger and just leave my middle finger up, that's a completely different mudra and a completely different hand gesture with a completely different meaning and uh, will be accepted or, or not accepted from the person I'm gesturing in completely different ways. And once I brought mudras as part of my practice and was able to just get my brain out of it and just let my body experience what I was doing, they became a love of mine. Even my granddaughter, she uh, loves the heart mudra. Yeah, the heart mudra. I have a picture of me and her doing this heart mudra. And she's just like, I love that one, Nana. <laughs> I really like to just when I'm like feeling sad or whatever it is, I just like to use that that heart mudra and to share it with other people because it makes them smile. So that, you know, yeah. something that I can share for somebody else with somebody else. So I'm going to try to find that scene from Hair where Treat Williams as Burger does the, the finger and the peace sign. I'm going to try to find it. If I can't, no big deal, but it fits perfectly with your story. I was watching The Simpsons the other day and Mr. Burns always has his fingers yes. tips together in Hakimi Mudra. But I wonder if, because The Simpsons is so brilliant and has, you know, has foreseen and foretold so many things, and there's a lot of really smart people writing this. And I wonder if that's not an ironic gesture that someone who knew about it thought, oh, wouldn't it be funny if the greedy, horrible, unfeeling Mr. Burns, oh, like excellent, had his fingertips together in this beautiful balancing mudra. Like, what is that? Maybe. I don't know. If you know, let me know. I don't know, but I do know that when I shared with my grandson something that was shared with us in the first season when Giselle was on the holding the thumb, if you know you want to rest and go to sleep, is another mudra. And when I showed it to my grandson, he's like, oh, Nana, I do that every night when I'm going to sleep. So maybe some of these gestures are just, you know, innate. They're just places that we feel something without really paying attention to the fact that it's a mudra right. for yoga. Maybe it's just there's a response to certain places that we place our body and our hands that are intuitive. And maybe the teachers who came up with them studied that, like Amy Matthews from um, when we did the Leslie Kamenoff. In my 300 hour, we did our anatomy with them. And Amy Matthews did a lot of research from what, what is it like fetal um, as you're growing, like, I forget what it's called, but it's the progression, like what you do when embryology and maybe when from, from inside to outside, like she really kind of understood. And I know my husband often will hold his thumbs, like he'll just be driving and one hand will have like a fist with his thumb in there. And that's like my kids from their day after or the day of the, that they were born, they all are holding their thumbs. 
and and that is a self-soothing thing is what Giselle had said, although she said hold one thumb with one hand and, and the other. But I think it probably is a similar effect. So if someone had studied you know, infant behaviors or, you know, was able to see that, then maybe it's not so random or magical. It's just sort of like, oh, it, it is magic. I think magic is is very real. And I don't mean magic in the illusory way, but who knows? I mean, because I don't know that as well, the history of how, you know, the shapes and all the things sort of came into being, which is something I would like to learn more about. But I wonder how much research was done simply by observing human nature and yes. animal nature. Wouldn't that be great, great that we it's just insane, right? find these different ways? I mean, I know that people talk about that with massage too. You know, it's intuitive. If your little kid comes to you and says, hey, mom, I, you know, they're crying. They got hurt. The very first thing that mom does usually is, well, kiss, hug. But we rub the area and then clean it and band-aid it. But this rubbing uh, when something hurts is an intuitive thing. And it grew into body work in many different ways. So the koshas are just a journey from something that is the most tangible our outermost physical body, the thing that I could relate to easily to begin with, and then into those innermost layers of ourself. And we talked about this also in the first season. Just because I said from the outermost to the innermost, from the most physical to the most subtle, they're really not necessarily one is bigger than the other. One is, you know, we are more superficial in our body. We can see it. But there isn't an order uh, to practice or an order in which to experience the koshas. Maybe you can start with bliss some days. That's, that's a really great day when you wake up and you're already in this blissful state. And it also may speak to where, when you are on your path rather than where you are on your path. Mm. So I don't think I could have started, although, you know, we also come into the world if your belief system, you know, sort of supports this uh, karmically. And, you know, sort of if you've been in other lifetimes, it's possible you are arriving at a different space. But I still, in this lifetime, I needed to start with my body because the other was was not really in in my peripheral vision yet. It was or it was just in the peripheral vision. So we started with Anamaya Kosha, the third limb, which was asana and the food body eating healthfully. Let's move on to Pranamaya. So Pranamaya is the first of the three subtle body koshas. And it connects the body and the mind. So what we do here is we use the fourth limb, which is pranayama. I actually was writing a pranamaya, but pranayama, which is breath work, because our vitality rides our breath. And I was reading from someone who said employing ujjayi while doing asana can help activate. I also have friends who are teachers who don't use ujjayi breath when they're practicing asana. And I can't find my light on pranayama right now by Iyengar, but in the beginning of the section, and it may say something later, but in the beginning of the section, he says, you can practice ujjayi anytime as long as you're not also practicing the retention at the top or bottom. So if you're going to use ujjayi in asana, just let it be that deep breathing in and out through the nose with that slight constriction in the back of the throat without retaining at either end. But it's also uh, an, an offer, an opportunity, go outside you know, with fresh air, eat healthy, healthful. I was also almost said healthy, eat healthful, fresh foods. Food is not healthy. It's healthful. <laughs> Just a little grammar thing there. If we're healthy, it'd be doing sit-ups and push-ups with me. But anyway, so there you go. You can do some breath work. 
and notice the energy when you're doing it. If you're not doing asana with it, then sitting there doing pranayama and noticing which of the breath exercises you're doing activate your parasympathetic nervous system. Where do you feel rested and restored? Where do you feel more vital? Like before I said it was deep breath, but it was fast. It was kind of vying for both. But just to notice, there's an awareness there. So pranamaya with pranayama, but adding a little bit of the physical can tap, help us tap into the vitality piece, maybe a little more specifically, and maybe not. And even when we're not like specifically paying attention in our class and when we're teaching, then yes, we're bringing in maybe specific practices to offer and for whatever that result is. But the other thing is being aware that the breath is a beautiful gift. It is part of our autonomic nervous system. So we don't have to pay attention to breathing. We're always going to breathe. You can go to sleep and you're still breathing. Hopefully, unless you have sleep apnea, then maybe we're not, you may have lapses in breath and there's ways to deal with that. That's beyond my purview anyway. But because this part of the autonomic nervous system, the breath, it's the only part of that autonomic nervous system that we can take control over, that we can choose to change that breath pattern, to have a pranamaya practice, a pranayama practice, sorry have a pranayama practice and choose specific breath practices that we would like to use. And by choosing specific ways of breathing, for instance, something that I've talked about before, that nice, long, calm exhale, we can begin to change some of those other systems by slowing down the breath, by speaking to the parasympathetic nervous system, our heart rate, heart rate may slow down. Our blood pressure may slow down. I'm not going to make a blanket statement, but those things do happen that we can find that. We can also maybe have our digestion enhanced by coming into the parasympathetic nervous system. If we're stressed out and always in sympathetic, you know, our resources are taken away from some of those um, internal systems so that we can run away from that bear and we've got energy in our arms and our legs and the places that we need to be in fight or flight. But it's such a beautiful gift once that connection and that relationship is built to notice. And this is a really simple practice. When you notice that you have an emotion, that emotion can be anger, frustration, happiness, joy, whatever it is when you're like, whoa, I really feel fill in your blank here. Pause for a minute and see if you can notice what's your breath pattern because breath patterns and emotions are linked. And once we understand the breath pattern of a certain emotion, I believe I can call on that breath pattern to call on that emotion. And the fact that we can manipulate the breath, we can actually direct it you know, you can join us for our kosha yoga because when we get to pranamaya kosha, we're going to do some laughter yoga. And laughter yoga, you know, they say that your body doesn't really know the difference between fabricated laughter and organic laughter. The same way that in a certain meditation, if you're on the beach, your body will have the same response to have being on the beach. If it's something you love or if it's something you fear or if it's something whatever, your body will respond to that. And the thing is like laughter yoga, I've taught it a couple of times and we played with it in camp last summer and it's extremely contrived in the beginning. 
you know, <laughs> and you're really using your breath and you are moving. So if you're not doing breath work with asana, do some fucking laughter yoga. There's so many fun activities you can do with laughter yoga. We're going to be doing it with our, our participants, but that's a way to kind of also activate this sheath or to be a part of the connection between the mind and the body in this, in this particular kosha. I want to I want to address the pattern thing too, but it will move us on to the next one. So I want to make sure that you feel complete here. Okay, I do. Go right ahead. So you talked about patterns, you know, sort of noticing the breath patterns. Manamaya kosha. Now this is interesting because now we've talked about the koshas three different times in their entirety, and each time as I'm kind of playing with them, different things are coming up. And manamaya kosha for the first two episodes or two first two times we talked about it. You know, it's interesting. It's the mental, the thoughts and all of that, but it didn't really stir me. Like it didn't give me that, the feeling, you know, and sometimes, you know, and things change. Sometimes it's a little more dominant in one than the other. Now talking about talking with your hands, if you look at any of the YouTube stuff, you'll see that if you hold my hands together, it'd be very hard for me to talk. But so Manamaya Kosha, it's still subtle. It's the first of the two mind layers. So mano means mind. And it's one of the layers that we share with animals. Like the next one, when we get there, separates us from the animal. But this one we share with the animals and it brings up our habits, our addictions, our patterns, and our stories. And we love stories. We talk a lot about talking about stories <laughs> and we want to get more into the stories. But the stories sometimes in yoga, their deep grooves are called samskaras. And these are things that we get, they're patterns that are very deeply embedded. And so we practice, we practice two, we practice the fifth and sixth limbs here. We practice pratyahara, which is a withdrawal of the senses and dharana, which I'm trying to pronounce correctly, concentration, which can be your breath. It can be a flame. It can be anything that you put your mind to, but it's from this place of cultivated stillness and concentration that we can begin to recognize and acknowledge these patterns. Some patterns we may not even be interested in changing, but that they work for us. We like them. That's fine. But recognizing them because they become habits and then they become that pile of crap in the middle of the living room that you no longer see because you've created a walking pattern around the pile of crap and you've walked around it so many times that your life is just, whether it's there or not, who gives a shit, but there's the pile. And then all of a sudden you see the pile. You're like, oh my God. And I say this for a friend. No, I actually, this is my experience a lot. I'll be like, you know what? I'm going to clean the pile today. And then I see that there's space. There's space there. There's opportunity where that pile once was. So if the pile, if we're as a metaphor for our patterns, it actually also caused us to create a new pattern. You know, it's just, it's, it's inner data that we get to work with in this quest for self-study. And so many different ways that we can connect with that mental and emotional layer. From meditation to like, I really started to connect with Manamaya Koshu when I learned to, to practice yin, because there's a lot of stillness in a yin practice. Staying in a pose for three minutes is a long time. And uh, one of the great things I, that I love about yin is it is a lesson in sitting with not only comfort, but discomfort to be able to notice. And the discomfort, I'm not saying that you're in pain in the pose. We should never be in pain when we're practicing. But sometimes there's 
pressure or discomfort, or I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is my least favorite pose. How long are we going to be here? And I can see how my brain is like going into the story. It's not saying, it wasn't saying, hey, just experience this pose. I started telling myself stories like, oh my gosh, this is my least favorite pose. I can't believe I have to stay here for three minutes. This is crazy. How am I possibly going to do that? And the story, that pattern, we talked about patterns, that pattern took me out of the experience. And the more I practiced yin, I was able to see myself saying, oh, this is my absolute favorite pose. Oh, I love that we chose this one. And then stop that story and say, let's just feel it. Let's experience it and be in it. Or the opposite. Oh my gosh, I can't stand this pose. Or simply to notice what's coming up without having a story or judging. Sometimes, you know, I can just say, huh, well, this is what agitation feels like. You know, sometimes when I'm working with the liver gallbladder meridian, you know, agitation can come up. But rather than judging it through years of practicing this yin practice and spending time to say, okay, I can notice my patterns. I can notice the emotions that are coming up. I can notice the chatter in my mind and do it, but also say, yeah, but step away from the story and see if you can come back into feeling, sensing, and experiencing and stay in this moment rather than the story of whether I loved it or hate it. And I think that's so wise because loving something can take you out just as much as not loving something. And, and loving, what does that mean? Does it just mean that you're having sensations in your body that are not so great right now? That one day there are certain poses, like I used to hate going into boat pose, Navasana, I used to hate. Those became two of my favorite poses over time. But the thing about storylining is what we do in meditation. We're human beings, so we will often default to story. So once we recognize it, we say, oh, I'm thinking, and then we come back to the moment, we come back to the breath. So it's not even really about eradicating the story. It's about noticing when we get caught up in the story. And so that piece, and in yin, it is so, it is so amazing to be able to do that because you have the time to recognize your patterns. Do I, like I said, when I did my meditation training at the Tibet house, the woman in front of me, her purse was a profile of a horse the entire time. And I had a whole thing. Like I had to say, oh, I'm just recognizing the horse. Come back to my breath. I'm thinking, come back to my breath. But every time I would get lost in this, in this horse, and I thought, why, why do I keep even looking there? Like, just shift my gaze, focus somewhere else. Like, but I needed to, to shift out so that I could feel the need to come back. You know, unless we move away, we don't know that we have to come back. So that's also really good data. And I think we, in our culture, especially it's, you know, these, I've never been a perfectionist. That's not my thing. So I don't relate well to it, but I understand it a little bit. I can be a little competitive sometimes, but in card games mostly and word games. So this idea that, you know, I, striving for perfection was never my thing. Striving for ease in my body was always my thing. So if I'm in lizard and right now I'm practicing lizard with my arms straight, hands on the ground with my back leg, lift, my back knee lifted. But for years I could drop my forearms down. I could drop my head. I could really fall into lizard in a way that was, you know, sustainable and felt really good in my body. But I have to listen. Today's body is different. Postmenopausal body, different. Not practicing the same way I used to gives me a different experience. So being present with that so that I can 
I can sort of process the data and then make a, a discernible choice. Like, oh, I, let me see what happens if I bend my elbows. No, I got to straighten them now. I'm going to be okay here where I was somewhere else another time. And so letting go is huge. And if you want to take uh, Teresa's yin class, come to Yoga Fest on the 20th. She'll be doing yin for this sheet when we're together. And what am I doing? I'll be doing, oh, asana with readings. So mm -hmm. this is another thing. So tapping into the mental piece. If you have a teacher, like I think I've said before, I had this teacher, Ula Britt, who told us the story of Sita and Ram in Both Sides of Warrior Two, gave a whole new experience to being in Warrior Two, first of all, for that long. And second of all, it gave the time that Yin might give to think, oh, this is what's happening in my body. I don't really, I wasn't making that connection when the teacher was telling me to X, Y, Z, but I can feel it now and I can make that adjustment. So, you know, for whatever that's worth. Yeah. I can't wait to hear the myths that uh, will be shared with the asanas that you choose. Sometimes, you know, Sherry and I know what each other is going to do. And sometimes we're just as surprised as you're going to be. <laughs> yeah. And it may not be a myth. I don't know what I'm going to read yet, yeah. but meaningful readings that allow. So as a practitioner, I could get lost in the story of Sita and Ram and let my concentration be there rather than in the physical body. Now, we've had a few teachers who've said, um, you know, the pose begins the moment you want to get out of it. So that taps right into the mental piece too, mind over matter. I've done three 300-mile bike rides from Boston to New York with very little training. And I will tell you, it is all about the mind over matter. And I did every fucking mile. It was amazing. But so... The reading, we have to also be careful. Are we guiding people too attached to stories or are we allowing the stories to be, I don't know, a moment of ease or just part of the bigger story? I know when you talk about the stories, well, I've always read one of your poems in Javasana in my classes. So thank you for having something for me to share and for all the people who've attended my classes to enjoy your words as well. Uh, we have that. So, you know, and that when you said, is it the distraction or is it an enhancement? Is it feeding the story? You know, one of the things, especially with teaching yin is having people with different levels of experience in the class. So there's a real nice balance between how often space is created in silence and quiet for people to enjoy and be in their own space. And three minutes can feel like a long time sometimes and times for me to speak while they're in there, especially for maybe somebody who's newer, who is, you know, not really understand, like, how long have I been here? You know, once you get into the post, sometimes it's really hard. So that nice balance of providing personal introspective time and letting everybody know I didn't uh, get up and skip out. <laughs> I used to wonder that when I'd be in Lippi's class, we'd be in Shavasana, eyes closed. And I thought, I wonder if she's still in the room. I wonder if this is like her time to leave and get a, a cup of tea or something. I wonder what she's doing while we're lying here in, some, in Shavasana. Well, I know. See how much our, our brain is telling us <laughs> stories? Like right? we're, in, we're in this practice, uh, Shavasana, of just like preparation for death, but also, you know, not doing anything, just kind of letting go and being. And uh, we still have all the stories that well, we're... And this was in the very beginning, though, so I didn't really know what we were doing. Like, I was just kind of following the leader and just kind of doing the thing. After a time, that kind of went away. But, you know, I did, also didn't understand what it meant to hold space. 
Mm. You know, that was something that was outside of anything I was even considering, thinking it wasn't part of my vocabulary in in concept or in, in language. And so that became a very potent piece of this, holding the space for the class, for the others, and for relationship is a very beautiful thing when it happens. And you can feel it when it's not happening. And I can guarantee you, if you come, when you come to our Arkosha Yoga at the festival, neither one of us is sneaking out of the class. <laughs> we will stay present and hold that space. <laughs> we certainly will. Oh my gosh. So should we move to Vignana? Yes, let's Vignana move. Vignana Maya Kosha. So this one is also of the mind, but it sets us apart from animals. This is part of our intellect, our wisdom, our willpower ethics and morality and all of that, which come from the first two limbs, the yama and the niyama. I don't know if we say yamas and niyamas. I'm sort of confused now about the, the plural of it or the name. So the yama and the niyama, but we also, we practice the seventh limb of dhyana, the meditation piece to access. Again, we're getting into that place of stillness, the place where we can kind of access those deeper layers. And getting in touch with our intuitive body, right? Having this Intuitive, like, what is the word I'm looking for? Uh, intuitive literacy, where, right, intuitiveness takes time to really, con it did for me, I'm going to say being intuitive was something that maybe it's a pattern to not really pay attention to our intuition. You know, I believe I had read once in relation to instincts and intuition that humans or the animals would never train themselves out of depend of, like, really trusting their instincts and is that that's an intuitive thing to know that when your instincts are talking to you pay attention but i've defaulted to my brain and thinking things through rather than intuitively like what does my heart feel what is my intuition telling me is the right decision here the right choice the thing that i actually want to do and can i develop practices that let me sit with these in, this intuition and this wisdom that's gained from past experiences. And rather than letting my brain make all of the choices and all of the decisions to tap into that. I like to say that, you know, the heart, I, I personally believe that, that my intuition or my intuitive wisdom comes from this heartfelt sense. So I like to think, you know, the heart is the leader of my destiny and the brain is just a faithful servant that helps me figure out how to get the thing done. But maybe I should know his default to uh, letting the brain be the decider. But listen to that little voice inside me that's saying, yes, 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 we can do this. And then let the brain help to figure out the details. So that's how I look at my, my own personal intuition and wisdom. And, you know, and language. It's so interesting about all of these things because language can either draw us in or it can push us out. It can make us confused. It can bring clarity. And I also have, I've always had a, a, a challenging time with, with my intuition. And I think there's a difference between tapping into our understanding of being intuitive and trusting our intuition. And you brought up both of those words in different ways. I think we are all intuitive. And like you said, we're the only animals who have sort of rationalized our intuition out of our, our mind space, our heart space, so that you know, we, we don't trust it as much. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we aren't intuitive. We are, and, we taught, and this goes back to Manamaya Kosha, the mental sheath, and how we can't really separate them out completely. 
because I think the mind is a trickster. You know, it, and I think Stacy has said this, and we'll just say Stacy from now on, you know, Stacy Brass Russell, Passionate and Prosperous. But she has said that the mind's job is to keep us alive by any means necessary, that that she calls it the human brain. And I think it goes back to there's other ways that you can talk about it. And I think that that's really interesting. And so that conversation between the heart and the mind, the heart, and mind and brain, I would also think that there's, there are some philosophical differences. But let's talk about the brain. So the brain and the heart, these two organs that are in our bodies that guide us. You know, I think sometimes the mind can, can redirect the heart or I don't think it actually does, but I think that's what we believe it does. And so that's part of the rationalizing. It, and I, I say the same language over and over, rationalizes in and out of favor according to our will. So if we want something and that feels that into like Manipura, that chakra space, this, this will of just like drive a pull of calling of, you know, of authentic self. I mean, the discernment, all of these practices, all of these help us figure all the rest of that shit out. Like, is it the mind or the heart that's really guiding us here? Which is the intuition? I don't, it's, I still sometimes get confused and I don't always know. And as much as I feel that I am an intuitive being and I can tap that most of the time, there's still a whole lot of times where, you know, I live in confusion. And so these practices become my anchor to understanding what I need to do in any given moment. That all came together while you were talking with so many different people books and things that I've learned when you talked about and reminded me of Stacy's words, right? The human brain's job is to keep us alive and to know what we need to do. It's a, it's a survival mechanism. But while you were talking, I started to remember my time at Kripalu in my outdoor leadership and the adoption of the phrase the more than human world. They must have said the more than human world so many times. And coming out of our kosher countdown for, the, for Earth Day and how much time we spend paying attention to our cues from the Earth and from the more than human world, the weather, the animals. When we look at this and we're talking about intuit, intuitiveness and instinct and the brain, which does in many ways separate us from animals. But can we look at that, the brain trying to keep us alive and still be able to take cues from the more than human world, the how animals interact, how the earth's ability to make its transition through seasons and not fight the season. You know, the earth isn't saying, oh, it's winter. Don't like it. I'm going to go snowbird. Or maybe it does. I don't know. <laughs> but we don't fight the seasons. There is yeah. this natural transition that weaves us in and out of different weathers, different experiences, different phases of our own life from, you know, infancy. We did that when we uh, talked about all of the different archetypes, you know, are we the crone, which I am at this point. So when we're talking about these intuitive layers, there's also not being resistant for me to the changes that are natural patterns that happen. And so that's how I think my brain went oh. from the human brain to the more than human world. Totally. And I love it. And I think, you know, animals have brains. That's not the thing that yes. separates us. It's the mind. It's and the that's mind. why I was trying to make a distinction between the two. 
but it's the animals trust fully their instinct. They don't have that mechanism that is questioning whether or not it's the right thing. So we can witness that and we can think, wow, that's really aspirational. I would love to be able to trust my instincts that much because I can see it reflecting back and it's possible. I love the world of possibility as revealed from the natural world because that's, I mean, really our best teacher is, is the world we live in because again, we've said this before, we're made of the same stuff. You know, we're not separate from it. It's all the thing. And I'm going to go into just before we do our final kosha, that the benefits of kosha yoga are, and I won't do all the benefits, I'll wait till after, but it reminds us of this interconnection. It reminds us that we are not separate from the world. It reminds us that these layers can be applicable in many different ways. And that once we can kind of have a sense of our own layers and how we interact with those, then we can begin to see them reflected outside ourselves and from other sources and from the animal world and the natural world. And it's spring right now. It's just like, holy fuck, it's so beautiful today. And to see those reflections. And even when like there's a little bit of scum on the top of the pond, like that's a reflection that I needed to see today. I need to clean up some of my own thoughts. I need to, you know, get in there with the swiffer and or I guess it would be on a pond. It would be more of like a net and just skim off the top so I can get back to the, the business at hand, which is which is living fully and purposefully and not forgetting, <laughs> you know, because part of that rationalization is for me, it's amnesia. It's forgetting my purpose or forgetting my meaning in that moment. And, and I forget a lot of shit these days. I mean, it's like my memory is improving a little bit here and there from taking pencil to paper and from, you know, doing some exercises, but how do we remember the fundamental things that keep us grounded? And, and so for me right now, it's practice because practice is tangible. It's something that I can make those connections. So kosha yoga, this holistic view of, of the practices, you know, just takes us back to yoga eight. <laughs> and the thing I love about yoga eight, the koshas, the chakras, and whatever lens you're looking for, there's something for everybody. There's so many ways to step in. There's, and not only to step in, but to recognize how many are already part of my life. When we start doing these deeper dives, I'm like, well, I have some of this already in how I live my life. Oh, I already have a practice for that. So this wellness through wholeness is, uh, for me, a way of remembering that it's my body, mind, and spirit that need to have my attention, right? The best, and this is, okay, so I'm going to tagline it here. This is one of my taglines, and that is the best gift you can give your body, mind, and spirit is your attention. And you'll get eight, the koshas, chakras, they're all reminders to give myself attention, but in a whole variety of different ways. So the more variety I have, as bored I become, I can become bored. So with all of these different options of caring for self, there's no room for me to be bored. Because when I get bored with one thing, I was like, hey, guess what? There's something else. There's but another maybe, thing. Maybe the boredom is the portal, though, to get beyond the boredom in that same practice to see what lies beneath that. You know, like meditation is not exciting. The mindfulness meditation is crazy boring. But it's not. 
Like it's both. It is boring and it is so rich. So it's kind of like the post starts the moment you want to get out of it. Mm -hmm. Maybe the practice starts once you get bored with it. You know, maybe that's the jumping off point, you know, because then we also might be kind of, I don't want to say chasing the shiny thing, but, you know, what is it about the boredom? Why is it boring now all of a sudden? Why, you know, what is waiting for you to excavate? Not you particularly, but us. Yeah, like, no, me too. I'm a collective you. Yeah. So are, are we ready to move on to Ananda Maya? We are ready. We are coming close to um, our hour. Our time. Yes. Okay. So this is also the language is different when you are looking at things from a different space or for a different purpose, different language comes up. And one of the things I loved about the language of kosha yoga is anandamaya, and I know that it's probably also used in other ways, but is part of the causal body. That's not a, 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 a phrase that I often use, the causal body, because it motivates the creation of the subtle and the gross bodies. Ananda means bliss. So how do you get there? Like maybe is this a map to bliss? So it allows us, we have to lose ourselves in others, in service of others, or in service of something bigger than ourselves, is what they're kind of saying in terms of practice. How do we touch this, this bliss thing? You had mentioned ego earlier, and we all wrestle with that because we don't want to eradicate our ego any more than we want to eradicate our thoughts. We, we, ego simply means I in Latin. It's a sense of self. But it's when we, like anything else, when we grasp too hard onto that, that it becomes problematic. But so this idea of selfless service, you know, you, your dog's name is Siva, and I, whether it's Seva or Siva in the yoga world, this uh, bhakti yoga is the yoga of devotion. So when you can, if you've, I just posted something the other day, I'd read the autobiography of a yogi back in 1989, 88 or 89. And that is sort of this, this feeling of like there's devotion. And I, even though I wasn't practicing yoga then, that book brought up a sense of devotional practice for me. So there's this feeling of losing yourself, the devotions, that's, that's the eighth limb of yoga is bliss. And the fifth kosha is tapping into that space. And so how do we do that and do that through service? And, you know, what, earlier I said they're not really, they don't really have an order. The koshas don't have an order. You and I have talked about this before, that they're, the coaches don't have an order to them. We could just as easily start with bliss. I mean, not just as easily. It might be a little bit hard, but each of the coaches hold equal space and they're not layered from inner to outer or outer to inner. They're just different parts of our holistic being. I love the idea that they're the same size. Like they tend to look like an onion, the koshas, but that's just to give us an image of it. For me, there is an order. I, I, I go from gross to subtle. It feels, it feels aligned with my inner wisdom to do that for me. So and I know that there are many different ways to do it, uh, but I just, so you decide for you, what is your, your map of the koshas? And just to kind of wrap it up a little bit for some of the benefits. So focusing on the five koshas, it helps us to achieve balance and harmony in our body, our mind, our emotions, our breath, our spirit, our vitality, you know, all of the things that make us who we are. It can help us deepen our practice. It can remind us and teach us of our interconnections and our be whether we're in or out of alignment. It gives us landmarks. It gives us an anchor, landmarks for deeper inquiry and healing from the source. So this is true with any of the subtle body or gross body anatomy things. If we can find the source of our discomfort, our suffering, our pain, our whatever, then we can really, you know, direct our practices to that layer, to that place. 
mind and body integration. You know, we talked about our instinct and our heart and, you know, sometimes we can feel disintegrated. So when we work from the level of the koshas, we can work to reintegrate. Helps us connect to our true nature on this crazy road to self-study. You know, it connects us to our bodies, our vitality, our thoughts, you know, our wisdom. And then that place, that, that elusive thing we call bliss. You know, for some practices, it could be enlightenment. For others, it's just that complete alignment. It's complete integration. It's understanding that the seer and the seen are not separate. It is the integration and this holistic map of getting to know myself a whole lot better. This not recognizing, you know, from the body to this inner joy and peaceful existence. So that is it. And Koshi Yoga on May 20th. If you are wanting to come and you're listening to me speak right now, you want to go get your tickets. There'll be a link in those show notes for tickets, but I know that they were going quickly. So hopefully by the time you're listening, there's still a few left. So don't delay. Yes, this should drop on the 27th and uh, Bucks County Yoga Fest is what it's called. May 20th. So you'll have a little less than a month. You'll have three weeks, but get your tickets. Come see us. Introduce yourselves. If we don't know you, say hello. Um, If we do know you, come on in and give us a hug. We love those hugs. Until next time. (laughs) Until next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening, for rating, reviewing, and subscribing to our channels and all our other stuff. Thank you for inspiring us to have these conversations and to create contemplative live experiences that move our bodies, hearts, and minds to the rhythm of our highest selves. Thank you for showing up. Feel free to send us your stories, questions, and comments to anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. As always, we thank our amazing editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny for our fun music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos. Journey with us as we continue down the roads of discovery, taking the detours and meeting the mysteries. You are our why. See you next time.